we're calling it How the Mighty Fall, How the Mighty Fall. And uh, we're going to jump into different pieces of the series in just a moment. Um, but before we do that, let me, let me get you to sort of look at the screen. And I've got any number of different slides up here. And I'm going to ask you at the end of these slides uh, what all of these people or countries or businesses, what they have in common. Okay, so let me go ahead and put these up on the screen really quickly. So first slide. All right, we've got Nixon and Harvey Weinstein. Okay, don't answer yet. Next slide. Then we have Prince Charles and Rod Blagojevich. I don't know if you remember that guy from a few years ago. And then next slide, we've got Bernie Madoff and Manuel Noriega. All right. Next slide, Saddam Hussein. Next slide, Roseanne Barr. Familiar with Roseanne? All right. Again, what are all these people? Don't, don't answer yet, but what do these people have in common? Next slide. We've got Rome and Greece. The little slide on the right is, is a Grecian um, picture. Uh, next, we've got the Assyrian Empire and the Persian Empire. Next, the Chu... Ooh, that's Egypt right there. That's Egypt right there. All right, next slide. <laughs> okay, now we're on to businesses. Enron and Circuit City. We used to have a Circuit City here in Rome. Next slide. Then we've got Fannie Mae and Zenith. Anybody remember Zenith TVs? Talk to me. It used to be like inside the cool like cabinetry. Anyway. All right, next slide. Motorola GM. Next slide. We've got uh, Sears. We've got Kmart. Next slide. Washington Mutual. Sharper Image. You guys remember Sharper Image? Like it used to be in the mall occasionally. Anyway. Next slide. Linens and Things. Lehman Brothers. Next slide. Polaroid. KB Toys. And then I, we may have one more slide. Maybe. Yeah, Blockbuster and Toys R Us. Okay, I, I mean, I don't want to like throw you guys under the bus, but earlier today I said, I said they're going to be able to get this. And somebody I was talking to said, no, they're not. They're not bright enough to get this at all. But I defended you and said you were. What are the, all those companies and countries and people, what do they have in common? Just shout it out. That's right. They were very good, but they kind of ended up failing. They fell from their position of power, right? So they fell from greatness into relative oblivion or powerlessness. Exactly right. That's right. Thank you so much. And I'll give you five bucks for saying that. Anyway, we didn't talk about it beforehand, I promise. So several years ago, um, I read a book called How the Mighty Fall. That's obviously why we're calling the series that. But the book is by Jim Collins. And so for those of you guys who are business people, maybe business students, Shorter or Barry, um, you're f- maybe familiar with this name, Jim Collins. He wrote Good to Great and Built to Last, which are two sort of industry standard business books. And How the Mighty Fall is uh, another standard uh, book now. And what's interesting is what How the, the, How the Mighty Fall was all about was that uh, he wrote this um, after Good to Great and after Built to Last. And the reason he wrote this book is because he noticed all these great companies. And so in this case, he was talking about companies that went through this, um, really this downfall of being these massively influential, great companies to sort of falling into relative um, obscurity or even bankruptcy. And as I read the book and looked at point after point after point, I thought, these, these are not business issues. These are human issues. Does that make sense? Like, these are not problems just that business, businesses face. These are problems that real human beings face. And so very quickly, I thought, man, I've got to turn this into a sermon series. Now, he talks about five different phases 
of going from uh, a great company to you know falling into obscurity or oblivion. And so the phases are, are these: hubris, that's pride, born of success; an undisciplined pursuit of more, greed; denial of risk and peril; grasping for salvation; capitulation to irrelevance or death; just giving up. Again, can you see very quickly how those aren't just problems that businesses face; those are problems that human beings face on a daily basis. And so what we're going to do is over the course of the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at each of those different um, concepts, different phases, and we're going to see if those phases match up with biblical truth, and if so, what they have to teach us about the Christian life, and even about just flourishing as human beings. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you again for (laughs) inviting us into your presence. I thank you for providing a way for us to stand before you um, through Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that everything that we do and say and think and feel today would, uh, would really flow through who um, we are as we trust in your Son, uh, Jesus, our Savior. So, Father, it's in his name that we pray these things today. Amen. So, <clears throat> I'm, I'm looking out here, and my primary basketball guy is not here this morning. I know he's on call, which is a bummer. Because uh, he'd get this. But we're going to start off with an illustration about um, the various men's basketball Olympic dream teams. Now, unfortunately, that picture is not great. But for those of you guys who have ever paid any attention to the Olympics over the course of the last 30 years, or maybe even NBA basketball, many of you know that the U.S. Uh, dream team, the Olympic men's team, over the years just absolutely, completely, thoroughly dominated and won gold medals um, in the Olympics uh, in the following years, 1992, 1996, 2000. And half the time they were playing left-handed with their right hand tied behind their back. It just was no competition. What was interesting is in 2004, they assembled this dream team. And uh, again, the picture's not great. That's my fault. But some of the people on this team are people you still know today. A very young LeBron James, but still pretty amazing. Carmelo Anthony, Allen Iverson, Stefan Marbury, Dwayne Wade, Lamar Odom, Tim Duncan. I mean, all these people are going to be in the Basketball Hall of Fame. But in 2004, they lost uh, three different games and only ended up winning the bronze medal in the Olympics. It was kind of humiliating, honestly. They lost to Puerto Rico, right? They lost to Argentina, and they lost to Lithuania, right? This is an era of Olympic U.S. history that we don't like to look back on, and I guarantee you those coaches and those players really don't look to, like to look back at that era and that year in particular. What happened is the question. Well, I happen to know, because I talked to somebody who worked with U.S. basketball, and I'll refer to it later, that what happened was is that they showed up to this, uh, these Olympics, and they were completely prideful and completely arrogant, and as a result, they underestimated all of their competition, and they fell into oblivion, right? And they uh, unfortunately went into the history books as a real uh, black spot in the history of U.S. basketball. Now, what does the Bible have to say about this idea of pride, of hubris, and what happens when we give ourselves to pride, whether that's um, consciously or unconsciously? Here's what the Bible says. And you, you know some of these verses, I would assume. But first one is, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall, right? Proverbs 16. What else does the Bible say? When pride comes, then comes disgrace, Proverbs 11, verse 2, right? It's very clear, and again, we could, we could talk about stories in the Bible, we could talk about other verses in the Bible, but it's very clear that hubris or pride 
is followed up by destruction or by a fall. And that's exactly the point that this book, uh, How the Mighty Fall by Jim Collins, is making. That's exactly the point. We're going to talk about four of his different subpoints really quickly. And again, we're going to compare these with Scripture, too, and see what Scripture has to teach us about this as well. So the first phase of uh, this hubris and pride is believing, and this is again in reference to these companies, that they believe that they were entitled to success. So I'm going to read a little quote here from Collins. Success, in the cases of these businesses, is viewed as deserved rather than fortuitous. Fleeting or even hard-earned in the face of daunting odds, people begin to believe that success will continue almost no matter what the organization decides to do or not do. In other words, they just believe that because of who they are, they deserve to be successful, that that they're just going to be blessed. Listen to Joshua chapter 2, verses, seven, uh, verses 2 through 4. This is a familiar story. We actually, I actually preached on this about a year ago. Uh, but it's about Joshua and the children of Israel entering into the promised land. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. In other words, like, this is kind of a piece of cake. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about 3,000 men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai. Now, in this story, part of what you see is that the Israelites have experienced some success. They've experienced some victories, but they've also been seeking God's face each time. And in this case, they come up against this little itty-bitty city that's kind of small, and there are not many people, and the men weren't warriors, and so they thought, we've got this. And so they didn't seek God's face, and you guys know the rest of the story. They were routed by the men of Ai. It's an Old Testament story with a very clear principle. We need to be really careful about believing that we're entitled to success. Listen to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, again, this is uh, years and years after Jesus is speaking, and he says this, I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence. And you do what you've heard from your father. He's talking to the Pharisees. Abraham is our father, they answered. A part of what was going on in that dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees is they were basically saying, we're going to heaven because Abraham's our father. We're entitled to this blessing. And Jesus basically says, look, that's not how it works, right? You're not blessed or entitled to anything. Um, Ultimately, salvation is by grace alone through faith as Kevin talked about this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. And so what is happening in each of these stories is people are showing up to God, and they're kind of going, hey, we deserve this. Like, we got it, right? Now, back to that story of the men's basketball team in 2004. Again, I mentioned I spoke with a fellow who actually uh, went um, to work for U.S. basketball, actually right before the Olympics. And it was interesting, as I was asking him about it, I was saying, hey, you know, I'm using this illustration in the sermon. I'm kind of curious about what your perspective is on the dream team. And he said, oh, that's easy. He said, they showed up, and he said, they thought, this is what he said, they thought they could just show up and they would win. And meanwhile, all these other countries were working and working and working, practicing to knock the U.S. off. I would encourage us, as we read about these stories, about these businesses, about these countries, as we even look at Joshua chapter 7 and John chapter 8, that we ask ourselves, Are we becoming like the Pharisees, right? Are we becoming like the Israelites? Are we becoming like those businesses that have failed? Have we quit um, relying upon God's grace and begun to think that somehow we're entitled to his blessing 
as opposed to receiving it simply by his good grace towards us. It's easy to come to God and to say, hey, God, I mean, you, don't, you wouldn't say this. You wouldn't put it on the, the, the test. But it's easy to come to God and kind of think, you know, God kind of owes me, right? You know, I go to church. I pray and read the Bible with my kids, right? I have my quiet times in the morning. I even listen to Christian music sometimes, right? God, surely you're going to bless me because of all those things I'm doing. But let's not forget that, again, that salvation isn't because of your works, It's because of what Christ has done for you. And so when we come and we offer our works to God and demand a blessing, thinking we're entitled to it, just think about how arrogant that is. Or maybe it's not arrogance on our part. Maybe it's actually ignorance. We have to remember that we're not loved by God because we're good. Rather, we're good because we're loved by God. He makes us good. Entitlement to success. The second thing we see about this hubris is we see that there's what Jim Collins calls a neglect of a primary flywheel. In other words, you forget the very thing that caused you to experience blessing to begin with. So here's a quote again from the book. Distracted by extraneous threats, adventures, and opportunities, leaders neglect a primary flywheel, failing to renew it with the same creativity or creative intensity that made it great in the first place, right? And so part of what we see here is that there's There's some way in which these businesses, uh, they quit focusing on the very thing that made them great, and they sort of get distracted by these other things. I think that happens in the Christian life as well. In fact, let me me read a verse, Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, and then I'll give a quick illustration. So uh, in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, uh, if you guys remember this passage, what is happening is that Jesus has appeared to John, um, the apostle, in a vision. And in it, Jesus has a message for these various churches. And to the Ephesian church, Jesus has this message. He says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love, right? You've neglected your primary flywheel. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. What Jesus is doing is saying, you're forgetting the very thing, the most important thing. Now, commentators will argue a little bit um, on what exactly that first love is either arguing that it's your first love is love of Jesus or that maybe he's talking about love of the brothers. Either way, in John chapter 15, we see Jesus on the last night of his life. He's speaking to the disciples before he knows he's going to the cross and he's going to die. And he tells them three things. He says, remain in me. That sounds a lot like loving Jesus. Uh, Love the brothers. Clearly, that's loving the brothers. And then he says to testify about him or to share the gospel. Either way, What Jesus is saying here is he's saying your primary flywheel is to love me and to love the brothers. It's really very simple, right? And so what's interesting as we look at this, um, as we look all the way in Matthew chapter 22, and when Jesus was asked by a Pharisee, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. In other words, Jesus affirms both of those things. He says, these are the essentials as believers, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you love your neighbor or your brother as yourself. Now, the question again, can churches fall away from this um, primary flywheel? Can we as individuals fall away from this as our primary flywheel? Absolutely. You know, I know it's my temptation, and I'm in relationship with enough other people to know 
that it's many of y'all's temptations as well to, uh, instead of getting up in the morning and reading your Bible and praying, and my big temptation is to go to the news feed on my iPhone, and I love to kind of scroll through, what is CNN saying about Kavanaugh? You know, what is Fox News saying about this? What is the New York Times saying about that? And what can happen is, is I can be, become very concerned in politics or in things that are going on in the culture, and that I can forget that the thing that's actually most powerful and most life-giving for me, as fun as all that other stuff is, is that I walk with the Lord, right? And that I love my neighbor as I love myself. It's very easy for that to occur. So the first two things we see here about this hubris is, one, there's an entitlement to success, and then, two, you begin to neglect a primary flywheel, which I would say is loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and with all your strength. And then the third thing we see in this book, again, that I think applies to our humanity and to our relationship with God, is that it's entitlement to success, neglect of a primary flywheel, and then it's when what or what you do replaces why or why you do it. Again, here's a quote. The rhetoric of success, we're successful because we do these specific things, replaces understanding and insight. We're successful because we understand why we do these specific things and under what conditions they would no longer work. Does that make sense? And so what happens is there's a shift in your mindset. Well, this is what we do versus this is why we do what we do. Uh, one of the illustrations that use, is used in the book, which I think is helpful, is there's a quote here where um, Collins is talking about Walmart and uh, particularly about how um, when Walton stepped down, he replaced himself with a, a CEO whose name was Glass. And here's what he says about why that, that uh, appointment was so important. He says this, he says, Walmart doesn't exist for the self-aggrandizement of its leaders. It exists for its customers. In other words, so many companies exist for the what. And the what might be, we want to make money, we want to sort of make money for our shareholders, X, Y, and Z, whatever these things are. But what made Sam Walton so amazing is he said, Walmart is going to be about existing for its customers. That's why we exist. That's why we're doing what we're doing. It's why we get up in the morning. Glass, the CEO after uh, Sam Walton, said this. Uh, He fervently believed in Walmart's core purpose to enable people of average means to buy more of the same things previously available only to wealthier people. In other words, our why is much more important than our what, right? What we do is sell these retail goods, but the reason we do it is because we want to provide things for people who couldn't ordinarily afford them. Does that make sense? And I guarantee you the same thing happens in the Christian life. Let me show you really quickly. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus, again, is talking to the Pharisees, who, by the way, were really good not only at doing what was right, but knowing what was right. And here's what Jesus said. You hypocrites, that's the Greek word for actor. You guys are actors. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips. You're saying the right thing. Your what is right, but their hearts are far from me. Your why is wrong. They worship me in vain. They're worshiping. They're doing what's right, but their teaching are but rules taught by men. Their why is off base. Listen to Jesus again in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says this, I tell you that no one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, you're sacrificing, you're doing some of the right things, but you're missing the more important thing. You would not have condemned the innocent for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so over and over again, what we see in the Christian life or in churches, it's very easy to get the what kind of right. 
I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I do those things, but we forget the why. Why are we doing these things, right? And why we do them is because, back to the previous point, because our lives are about loving our Lord, right, with our heart, with our mind, with our soul and our strength, because he rescued us, because he saved us, because he's acting, acted lovingly towards us. He's adopted us. And so we can do all sorts of the right things, but we can forget why we're doing them. That happens with the Lord's Supper. I grew up at a great church. It was really healthy in lots of, lots of ways. Uh, but one of the places that I, at least my recollection of growing up in that church, was that whenever we came to this meal we call the Lord's Supper or communion, um, basically what happened was, is all I ever heard was, don't take this if you have any unconfessed sin or you'll go to hell, Right? And so uh, the only thing that I ever associated with the Lord's Supper was like, if you do this wrong, you're in big trouble, right? But the actual why is very different. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be a reminder that God offers you grace and forgiveness and adoption, a place at the family table, that all of your sins have been wiped away. Does that make sense? That's not at all what I heard, and it may not have been what my church actually taught. You know, there are all sorts of other places where um, we can do these same things. We can, again, read our Bible. We can pray. We can go to church. We can go to a Sunday school class. We can do all these things, but we can forget why we're doing them. And ultimately, we're doing them because we want to stand in the presence of our God and our Father who loves us and who wants to walk with us and wants to know us, who wants to know you. How many of us are doing the right things, but we've forgotten why? So, entitlement to success neglect of a primary flywheel, and then what replaces why. The last point that Collins makes in the book, and again, I think it's very applicable to the Christian life, is discounting the role of luck or providence in our case. Listen to this quote. Instead of acknowledging, that's these businesses, instead of acknowledging that luck and fortuitous events might have played a helpful role, people begin to presume that success is due entirely to the superior qualities of the, of the enterprise and its leadership. In other words, the reason we're successful is because um, we're better than everybody else and our leaders are better than everybody else. What, is, what does the Bible have to say about this? Proverbs 16. The Lord works everything out for his own ends, right? Why is life going pretty well for you? Well, because God's working something out for his glory and for your good. In his heart, a man plants his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Can you really take credit for the things that have gone well in your life? I promise you there are other factors involved. Deuteronomy 7 says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He's talking about the Israelites here. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. In other words, don't think God chose you because somehow you earned it or because you deserved it. Rather, he actually chose you for the exact opposite reason. If you guys have been hanging out around Seven Hills Fellowship very long, you maybe have heard me tell the story of uh, when um, I, I adopted my, my cat that I had until I was um, 21 years old. Girl Kitty was her name because I was a very creative at naming cats. And I promise I'll get back to this verse in a minute, but we, somebody nearby on a farm nearby, their cat had had kittens. And so my mom said, hey, you can get, my sister and I were each allowed to choose one. And I chose, well, she chose this beautiful, big, fat, gray kitten. And I looked into the box of squirming kitten life and 
I saw this um, little, you know, kind of brownish, uh, it was the runt of the litter, who, and I chose Girl Kitty. And the reason that I chose Girl Kitty is I literally was afraid, like, nobody else is going to choose her if I don't, right? And so there's a sense in which God is saying here, it's like, I didn't choose you because you're the big, fat, fluffy, gray kitten. I chose you because you were kind of little, actually. Verse 8, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand. He redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, Israel, why is it that you're great? Because I just decided I wanted to love you. I wanted to adopt you. I hate to tell you this, but it wasn't anything about you, although God does love you because cre- you're created in his image. But ultimately, that's, that's not what was going on there. He just wanted to be gracious. There's a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Maybe some of you are familiar with any number of his books. He's a New York Times bestselling author. But I, the, this book, Outliers, um, he talks about um, essentially um, why people are very successful and the narrative we form versus what the facts maybe actually are. So I'm going to read a kind of a lengthy quote here. There's a picture of Malcolm up here in a minute. In the autobiographies published every year by uh, entrepreneur celebrities, the storyline is always the same. Our hero is born in modest circumstances and by virtue of his own grit and talent fights his way to greatness. Like that's the narrative of so many of these sort of celebrity entrepreneur business books. And uh, he goes on to say, um, I think overall it's a disadvantage. He's now quoting Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush once said of what it meant for his business career that he was the son of an American president and the brother of an American president and the grandson of a Wall Street banker and U.S. senator. When he ran for governor of Florida, he repeated, repeatedly referred to himself as a self-made man. Okay, I do not mean to throw Jeb under the bus here, but again, listen to the arrogance of that comment because what he's saying here is he's saying, you know, even though my dad was a president and my brother was a president and I was the grandson of a Wall Street banker and a U.S. senator, I'm really a self-made man. I did it all myself is what he's saying. He goes on, uh, Malcolm goes on to say, in Outliers, I want to convince you that these kinds of personal explanations of success just don't work. People don't rise from nothing. We do owe something to parentage and patronage. The people who stand before kings may look like they did it all by themselves, but in fact, they're invariably the beneficiaries of hidden advantages and extraordinary opportunities and cultural legacies that allow them to learn and work hard and make sense of the world in ways that others can't. Just don't get that opportunity. It makes a difference where and when we grew up. The culture we belong to and the legacies passed down by our forebears shape the patterns of our achievement in ways that we can't begin to imagine. The tallest oak in the forest is the tallest, not just because it grew from the hardiest acorn, It's the tallest also because no other trees blocked the sunlight. The soil around it was deep and rich. No rabbit chewed through its bark as a sapling, and no lumberjack cut it down before it matured. Does that make sense? In other words, what he's saying here is don't be so arrogant as to say that I'm responsible for all the good stuff in my life, right? The reason that God has blessed me and not all those other people is because I chose to go to church. I chose to have my quiet time. I chose to read my Bible. I chose to do all of this stuff. The truth is it's far more complicated than that. If you'd been born in Saudi Arabia or in Sudan, right, or in Russia or in Cuba, you'd be an utterly different person today. God put you in a certain family. 
He put you in a, in a particular time. He put you in a particular place. And you're blessed by him because he chose to bless you. Listen to what Deuteronomy 8 says. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, right? You know, fill in the blank there. My intellect, my savvy, right, my strength, whatever these things are, that all of that is why I'm blessed. All of that's why my life has gone so great. And then verse 18 says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant of blessing, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. And so part of what Jim Collins is saying, part of what Malcolm Gladwell is saying, part of what the Old Testament is saying, part of what Jesus is saying here is they're all saying the same thing. They're saying that don't get trapped into pride, don't get trapped in arrogance, but rather live your life in humility. Unfortunately, it's just not that easy to say, quit being prideful, be humble. So what's the cure? The cure for your pride and your arrogance is just for a moment to stand in the presence of God. It just doesn't take much for you then to all of a sudden go, ah, yeah, that's right. You love me. You've blessed me. You've chosen me. You've called me. And again, I would direct your attention to Jesus. Listen to what Philippians chapter 2 has to say. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's what Jesus did. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's what Jesus did. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, even though he was God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Does that make sense? If Jesus humbled himself to honor his Father, and because he loved you and me, should we be arrogant? Should we be prideful? Or rather, should we be humbled by the extravagant love of our Father and our brother Jesus who gave his life in order that we might be brought back into a relationship with God and that we might flourish, right? Shouldn't we actually be the most humble people on earth, not the most prideful? This morning, as you look around the room, there are these tables with bread and wine, uh, or on my right, it's bread and wine. On on, uh, my left, it's bread and grape juice. And this is the meal, again, that we call the Lord's Supper. Some of you call it communion. Some of you have grown up in other traditions with different names. But essentially, this meal is, is always a symbol. It's always a sign that communicates something to you. And what's interesting is that we do this because Jesus commanded us to do it. That's very interesting. And he commanded us to do a visceral thing. And by visceral, what I mean is it's tactile. You can see it. You can feel it. You can taste it. You can touch it right? And what Jesus wants to do is through this meal, he wants to remind you of something. What is it? What Jesus wants to remind you in this meal is that he is the eternal Passover lamb, that he was killed in your place. And as a result of his death and his resurrection, God looks at you and you are clean. You are forgiven. You are innocent, right? 
And so that gives you the strength then to stand before God because you know that what God says is, I now look at you and I see you covered by the blood of my son, Jesus, the eternal Passover lamb. And so what happens is Satan or your psychology or the world speaks loudly into your mind and into your heart and says, you can only be accepted by God if you do certain things, right? But that's not at all what the Lord's Supper teaches. The Lord's Supper teaches that Jesus did everything that was required for you to be accepted, right? Those voices, again, whether Satan or the world or culture, whatever it is, those voices speak loudly into your head and into your heart. And they say, there's no way that God can forgive you for that thing because that thing you did, man, that's unforgivable. No way. But again, the voice of God in this meal declares the life and the death of my son Jesus is vastly greater than whatever that sin was that you did. And you get to choose whose voice are you going to listen to. The voices of Satan or the voice of Satan, the voice again of culture might say, well, you know what, you guys, you just did it too many times, right? Because you did it over and over and over again. And not only that, but you knew you shouldn't do it and you did it anyway. There's no way God can forgive you for that thing. And again, what this meal speaks loudly and more loudly should be the fact that God says, no, the blood of my son is more than enough to cover over every sin that you've ever committed or will ever commit. And not just your sins, but the sins of all those who trust in my son. His life and death is much greater than all the weight of all the sin of all of humanity. And what this meal represents is forgiveness. This meal represents that you have been declared righteous by God, right? So I want you to sit there this morning, and uh, in a moment I'm going to pray and I'm going to read the words of institution, and I want you to wrestle with that truth. And I want you to, uh, man, I'm going to pray that God's voice in this meal would be louder than those other voices. And that fundamentally what would happen here is that you would take this bread and dip it into the wine, and in so doing, that you would believe the gospel, that you would believe this tactile, visceral uh, truth that Jesus is communicating to you, that you're loved, that you're forgiven, that you're not guilty, not because of your life, but because of his. Uh, hear now the words of institution, and I'll pray. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, providing an antidote to our pride, our hubris, our arrogance in um, the example of your son, Jesus. So, Father, I pray that we would find our hope in him. And so, Father, even as we prepare to receive um, this meal today that you've offered to us, I pray, Father, that, um, that if we're trusting in ourselves um, and in our own goodness, or if we somehow believe we don't need salvation, I pray that for those people that are in that place, that they would sit back and just um, watch your people as they receive this grace you offer. And Father, for the, the rest of us in this room who, who do trust alone in the perfect life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, for our innocence, uh, for that declaration of not guilty, Father, I pray that we would walk up to this table and I pray that we would humbly but boldly 
tear off bread and dip it into wine and remember that we're forgiven, that we're loved, that we're adopted by you, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.